Did you know we are commanded in the Bible to be filled with the Holy Spirit? We are commanded to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. But what does that look like? We, we, we have Sometimes we have commands in Scripture and sometimes we're like, oh man, uh, yeah, I just, I just have a hard time picturing that. How do I actually live that out? How do I apply that in my own life? Well, Romans 12 is helpful. We've already looked at the first eight verses, but there in Romans 12, verses 1 through 8, Paul has laid the foundation of the dedicated Christian life for us. We're, we're to be totally dedicated to God in various ways we've already seen, but in the rest of this letter, or this epistle, he focuses on specific ways in which believers must live their lives in obedience to God's Word. How do you live that out? What does the Spirit-filled life look like? And so, the call to practical holy living here is is uh, really the climax of the book of Romans. Romans 12 has provided a, a mandatory list of traits here that characterize the Spirit-filled life. So if you want to know what it looks like, read Romans 12. And the Apostle Paul presents, in fact, uh, some characteristics here, but they're kind of coming under two categories in this paragraph here, verses 9 through 13. We're going to look at some personal duties that, that we as Christians have, and then what about our duties to other Christians? Well, there's there's our two points we're going to look at today, our personal duties and then the duties to Christians. So look at Romans 12, verse 9. Verse 9 says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So I propose from our text today that God wants us, notice us, plural, He wants us, plural, to exercise grace to each other. I don't know how else to describe all these, these characteristics, this, this list of traits it's just God exercising His grace through us. It's the only way we can do all of this. But let's look at the, uh, the, the first category here, which is just in verse 9. The personal duty starts with genuine love. We are to show genuine love. You have a new KJV. It says love without hypocrisy. You, you may know the greatest virtue of the Christian life is love. And in this case, there's all kinds of English, uh, Greek words um, that often get translated in English as love. So you may guess which Greek word this is. It's God's kind of love for us. It's agape love. And you say, well, what is agape love? Well, agape love centers on the needs and the welfare of the one loved and is willing to pay whatever price that is necessary to meet those needs and to foster welfare in that individual. So did you get that? It's, it's others-focused. 
it's centered on the needs and the welfare of the one who is loved. And it doesn't matter what it costs, how much time is involved to pour into that person that's willing to do so. You probably also know that Jesus said the greatest commands all have to do with love. Summarizing all Ten Commandments, love God and love people. You can read that in Matthew 22. Love is very important in, in Scripture. It, it, love is so important that a Christian, um, it, it's that any spiritual. It's more important than all the other spiritual gifts that the Bible's been talking about here. And that's why when we read in First Corinthians 12, you come to chapter 13. It says, "Love is superior." Right? You can do all these amazing things. It talks about you can you can cast out demons. You can do all these great, wonderful works. You can preach and in Jesus' name, but if you if you do all those things without love, it's worthless. It's not surprising the first part of the fruit of the Spirit is love in Galatians five. And by the way, it's 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 by our love for our fellow believers, it shows something to the world. You remember what Jesus says in John thirteen? What what are you showing? You're showing all men will know that we are Christ's disciples. By what? Our love for one another. So this is a, a common recurring theme in Scripture. These are just some of the cross-references you can find. Uh, in fact, genuine love is, is such a part of supernatural living that the Apostle John says this in 1 John 3.14. Look at this. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Serious words. So what's, he, what's John saying there? He, if, if we show no evidence of agape kind of love here, then we don't have eternal life. You're abiding in death. That's how serious this is. This is one of those signs of a true Christian. A true Christian loves other Christians. And so this genuine love is to be, some of your Bibles might talk about hypocrisy. Love without hypocrisy. In other words, to be untainted by our own self-centeredness. Christian love is to be shown purely and sincerely. What what, what does that mean to be without hypocrisy or to be sincere? Well, uh, let me give you a negative example. Judas would be a prime example of of what a hypocrite is. He wasn't sincere. Why is that? Because Judas had a love for money pretending to be a follower of Christ, but was he really? No, he wasn't. Acting one way, but in the inside, he's something else. That's what a hypocrite is. He wasn't sincere. In fact, he had fooled all the other disciples. And it's interesting, if you follow that word hypocrite, uh, centuries ago, the the word hypocrite was uh, a man who, who stood up on a stage and he played a part. He was an actor. In fact, you ever seen the mask? I put some of the mask on the screen here. These are the guys who go up on the stage and they keep changing the mask around because, you know, some were smiley face, some were frowny, some were angry, some were crying. And so the mask is showing the, the emotions and what the actor is trying to portray. Originally, that's what a hypocrite was, someone wearing a mask. <laughs> And so when we assume a character we do not have, you, you and I are playing a hypocrite. We're not sincere. That word sincere is another interesting word. 
sincere is an English word that's uh, based on two Latin words. Now, I don't know Latin, okay, so I've learned from other people here, but, but you got uh, sine sera. Uh, it just means without wax. So you see on the screen there, it's been divided up. Originally, it meant without wax. It referred to the ancient practice of uh, when they would they would take a, a pot and they would fill in the cracks with the wax, and then you kind of paint over it and you try to hide all the inferiorities, and then and then you know what you do? You go and sell it as a superior pot, one without wax, and so they put the stamp sine sera. It's sincere, without wax, no faking here. It's the real deal. And, and so people go and pray, pay a higher price for something that had sine sera written on it without wax. But in regard to people, the idea here is this says that a sincere person is actually somebody who's not hiding his true nature behind some mask. Uh, he, he's not being a hypocrite in word or action. And so somebody who is evidencing this grace to other Christians here is somebody who is uh, he lets their love be genuine. Number two, abhor evil. Abhor evil. That's what it says there in verse 9. Now, hatred of evil is kind of like the, the other side of love, and you'll see why I say that in a moment. But love by its very nature cannot approve what is ungodly, what is unrighteous. For example, uh, we see in Scripture that evil is the opposite of godliness or holiness. For example, here, look at Proverbs 8, verse 13. It says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So the child of God, a Christian, hates evil. Why? Because God hates evil. <laughs> That's why. God abhors evil. Evil is the enemy of God and the enemy of love. And that's why when you read here in Psalm 97, verse 10, look what it says. It says, hate evil, you who love the Lord. So is that obvious? I hope if you love God, then you're going to hate what he hates. You're going to hate evil. Uh, let, me, let me illustrate it this way. You go into the hospital, you can be thankful that uh, if you ever have surgery, you can be thankful for for what doctors and nurses do these days, because many, many years ago, people died of infections all the time. Uh, doctors and the mortician were often the same person. So, you know, he's going down and working on dead bodies, and then he goes up and does surgery right after he's just been working on a dead body. So he gets the live person all sick, and then they die, and then he goes down and, you know, do you, you see? That's, that's the sort of thing that used to happen. But today... Doctors and nurses are dedicated to helping people who are ill. Uh, they, they care about spreading diseases, right? Washing their hands, wearing gloves, so forth. And they're, they're taking precautions to protect themselves from those diseases for themselves as well as for others. They, they don't want to become infected. They don't want you to become infected. That's a good thing. And, and the, the illustration there is, uh, applies to how we handle evil in our lives. See, someone has said the only security against sin is to be shocked by it. How often are we shocked by sin? There's this constant bombardment of our senses that makes it difficult to be shocked by anything anymore, right? 
right? We're just constantly bombarded by this world, Satan, and our own, well, we got our own flesh going with us everywhere. These enemies are, are with us and in us and surround us. But genuine hatred of evil helps us to avoid evil. Well, how do you get to that point? Well, we, I, can, I can tell you one way to avoid it, and then, and then we'll, I'll look at a scripture here that will help us to avoid it. But in Psalm 1, kind of the entrance into the Psalter, it gives us a really good progression. One of the things Psalm 1 does here is it, it says you can't flirt with sin and escape falling into it. You flirt with sin, you get tainted by sin, and it, it, it can be a slippery slope. And so we should refuse to be enticed by the attraction of sin. And then the solution is we should then meditate on God's Word. That's what Psalm 1 tells us here. Look at this, verse 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. What's the solution? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. So the solution is you you, you got to meditate on the right content, right? You you're in this world, so your only your only solution when you're in the world is you have to meditate on God's truth, on his word. We're to love what Christ loves, hate what he hates. The uh, third part here is hold fast to the good. That's what verse 9 says. Hold fast to what is good. Now, that's an interesting word, hold fast. Uh, That verb there is uh, from a Greek word, which means glue. Shouldn't surprise us that we even have a, I think there's a company we we have here, right? Even in our country called Holdfast. What do you think they're selling? (laughs) Amongst other things, they sell glues. That's, that's a good word, because coming from this Greek word, hold fast here. And it was, it was used of any kind of bond. You are to be bonded here, God says. You are to be glued to what is good. So as servants of God, we're to bind ourselves here to what is good. In other words, that which is good. You say, well, <laughs> who gets to define that? Well, God defines that. Remember, Jesus says he is good. And so we're, we're talking about something that's inherently right and worthy. It's what God determines what is right and worthy, by the way. And the good is described in Philippians 4 as something that's true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute. And so Philippians 4 says, Let your mind cling, be glued, be bonded to those things. And we already see, we've already seen the beginning of Romans 12. The key to finding and following what is good is right there in Romans 12 too. What's the key? The negative is don't allow yourself to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's the key. If you don't do that, you're, you're doomed to fail. And so as we separate ourselves from the things of the world and we then uh, that's not enough, by the way. Then you have to saturate yourselves with the Word of God, and then the, if you do that, the things that are good will more and then more replace the things that are evil. You'll think like God. If you think like God, then you'll abhor what is evil, 
And then you'll be bonded and glued to what is good. So those are your personal duties. And then the next verses here give us duty to Christians. And the first one we see is we're to love with brotherly affection. You are to love with brotherly affection. By the way, that applies to you sisters. <laughs> right? I'll explain what that means here. Uh, but first of all, notice you're to love. And by the way, the love and the brotherly affection are kind of synonymous ideas. Uh, love is coming from a compound Greek word. Maybe you've heard of this kind of love, the, the philos kind of love. That's a Greek word. It just means you're to be a friend, or it's a friendship kind of love. Hopefully it's the love you have for a friend. Uh, but um, it, the other part of the, uh, the compound Greek word there is thorge. This is a natural family love. And, and, of course, this one's not based on any kind of personal attraction. You, you love your brother or your sister or your mother or your father just because they're family members. That's the idea here. But notice it, it, it combines that with this brotherly affection here. And brotherly affection comes from a Greek word called Philadelphia. There's a city in the United States called Philadelphia. It's supposed to be the city of brotherly love, but I doubt it. Right? That's the idea. Phileo uh, has this idea of tender affection towards someone. And then, and then the Adelphos is your brother. It's your brother. So the idea is there would have a loving family type affection for one another. And guess what? If you're a Christian, you're in a family, a, a very large family, the, the body of Christ. You're, you're in this family of God, if you will. And so you have uh, uh, lots of brothers and sisters, right, all over the world. And you have this bond. You have this glue between you. And this is important. Love is something that's required. It's something that's inescapable in Scripture. For example, look at this. 1 John 5, 1 says, Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Do you see the connection? You, you, you can't claim to love God and then hate a Christian. That's what John's saying. If you love God, you love Christians. And then he says this in chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, Oh, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John doesn't pull any punches, does he? <laughs> He's not beating around the bush. It's, he makes it pretty clear. So brotherly love here reflects the nature of Christians. It's showing who we really are. And that's why the Bible says, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, Now as to the love of the brethren... You have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In other words, it should be obvious. It should be the natural thing. We're talking about a natural family affection for your brothers and sisters. It should be natural. So the true child of God knows intuitively that he is to love his spiritual brothers and sisters just as it's normal for you to love your family members. Well, if you don't love your family members, then you might have a hard time understanding and living this out. Some people do. But, but hopefully, you, hopefully you, you get the point here. Uh, the second point the Bible's making here is we're to outdo one another in showing honor. 
So here's the second duty to, to Christians. Outdo one another in showing honor. The basic virtue or idea here is humility. Humility. It's like Philippians 2 says. Uh, you're, you're doing nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but in humility of mind. What do you do? You regard one another as more important than yourself. So some people say, well, humility, that's just, that's just thinking less of yourself. No, that, that might be a false humility. No, Philippians 2 says humility is you're thinking more of other people, basically. You need to flip that around. Think more highly of other people. That's humility of mind. We're to give honor to fellow believers. How do you do that? By putting them first. Thinking of them. To honor, by the way, is not flattery. Somebody, I think it was a Greek philosopher who said, uh, uh, beware of the flatterer. He's actually your worst enemy. Yeah, watch out for flatterers. Uh, this, this, has, this is not flattery. This is not giving some hypocritical praise to somebody because you have a, a bad motive. You just, you're hoping to receive a compliment in return or you're trying to gain favor because you want to be honored. Right? Beware of your motives here. That's one of the problems with flattery. There's also a, there's often a sinful motive. And so the idea here is your honor is, is to be show, showing genuine appreciation, a genuine admiration for that Christian. So outdo one another in showing honor. The third trait is do not be slothful in zeal. Do not be slothful in zeal. This is interesting. The idea is here, don't be lazy. Don't, be, uh, don't back off on your intensity toward, toward that Christian. Whatever is worth doing for God's service is worth doing with enthusiasm and proper care. Do you serve God with enthusiasm? Do you serve that other Christian with enthusiasm, with zeal, with passion? That's what God's saying to do here. Uh, He's saying there's no room for laziness in the Lord's work. In fact, uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 9.10 said this, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in the grave. Wow, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. So whatever you do for God must be done, by the way, in this present life, right? What did Solomon say? You're you're not going to do it in the grave. You're not going to do it when you're dead and gone. Do it now in this life. So laziness in Christian living not only prevents good from being done, it's worse than that. It actually allows evil to prosper. As you probably heard it said, I don't know who said this, but somebody said all it takes for evil to succeed is for good people to do nothing. That's it. It's kind of like your garden. What does it take in your garden for the weeds to succeed and prosper? Right? Have any of you just let your garden go fallow and ignore it for a little bit? What happens with your garden? Right? Do you, do you have to fertilize the weeds? And pull up all the good plants around the weeds, you know, and give it some fertilizer and water, right? What do you have to do? Nothing, right? Absolutely nothing, and the weeds prosper. They succeed. Just leave it alone. <laughs> well, 
that's very applicable for us, isn't it? You just let your life go, let your soul go. Don't look, don't don't feed your soul, and you're in trouble, aren't you? And so this is why Paul charged the Ephesians in Ephesians five. He said, "Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Why? Because the 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 days are evil. The days are evil." The fourth trait is be fervent in spirits. Be fervent in spirit. Being fervent in spirit. What is that talking about? It's primarily referring to your attitude. So spirit and attitude are kind of synonymous words here. A fervent literally means to boil. Think of boiling water here. And by the way, we're not talking about boiling water that's gone out of control. Uh, the idea here is think of a steam engine. Uh, when when they had when they used to have steam engines, you know they would might, might use coal most likely to heat up the water to make some steam, and then from the steam that it would run the engine. That that steam and that boiling is under control. It, it has sufficient heat to produce the energy that's necessary to get the work done. Sadly, though, one of the worst blights on on, on Christians sometimes is this. Lack of fervency, this lack of enthusiasm, apathy. Most people could make a long list of failures that come as a result of our indifference and our lack of commitment and our apathy. Have you ever heard it said it's really hard to steer a parked car? Try steering a parked car. That's why... That's why apathy made Christ sick in those churches there in Revelation 2. He wants us to be fervent in spirit. So fervent, fervency is going to require some resolve. It's going to require some persistence. You may not feel like being committed. You, you might feel like being indifferent. You might feel unmotivated. God says be fervent in your attitude, in your spirit. The fifth trait is serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. So as you're serving others, remember, you're ultimately serving God. Serve the Lord there, by the way, has to do with your perspective and your priority. Because you understand you can serve God as you serve His people, right? Uh, Serve there refers to the service of a bond slave or a servant whose whole reason for existence was to do his master's bidding, his master's will. That's why he was there. And isn't it interesting that the apostles call themselves doulosses, bond servants, servants of the Lord? Why did they exist? Why do we exist to serve the Lord? Do not serve the Lord in your own power. It doesn't work. It doesn't work any more than you can save yourself. Right? Our supreme purpose is to serve God, and our power to, to do that comes from Him as well. And that's why... For example, Colossians 1.29 says, look at this. Paul says he combines the his working and God's working together here in verse 29 when he says, For this also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Do you, do you see how the two go together? Isn't that interesting? Paul says, I work and God works. And then God gets the glory because he's the one who does the work in me. That's the way it should be, and that's the way it is. Any any 
good accomplished for God's glory as you serve Him is, is His work. The sixth trait is this, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. What does it look like to be spirit-filled? Well, someone who's spirit-filled is going to be rejoicing in a hope that he knows he has. Uh, this living the supernatural life inevitably brings opposition. You're going to be opposed by your own flesh, by Satan in this world. Sometimes you might be even opposed by people who call themselves Christians, sadly. Sadly. But without hope, we, we, we can't survive. You just can't survive. By the way, Paul already explained back in chapter 8 that you have hope. You have a glorious hope. In fact, look at the hope he talks about here. I put it on the screen. Romans 8, verse 24, he says, For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In other words, my friend, you, you, have, you have hope in a glorious future with God in a glorified body in heaven, your eternal home. You have eternal life. And in that you can rejoice no matter what opposition you, you might receive in this life. I guess kind of carrying on from that, you can see the next trait as you, as you show grace to Christians is be patient in tribulation. Be patient in tribulation. And it is because of that point that you can rejoice in hope that then you're able to persevere in any tribulation. Because we have perfect assurance concerning the ultimate end of our lives, we have eternal life, that we're now able to persist against the obstacles and the trials and the suffering, and we can endure in that suffering. It's our only hope. And so that's why Paul says in chapter 5 that you can have this perfect confidence. Look at this, Romans 5, verse 2. He says, We exult in hope of the glory of God, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't read that correctly, did I? Did he really say that we can exult in our tribulations? He did, didn't he? How's that possible? Look what he says. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Wow. So I could be patient in tribulation because there's ultimately hope. There, there's a fruit of the Holy Spirit working in and through me here. That's great. And then there's an eighth trait. Be constant in prayer. One of the reasons God allows us to go through tribulation is He wants us to draw close to Him. Have you ever noticed that happens in your life? I have. God brings tribulation in, in your life, some trial, and you, you draw real close. Good times, we tend to kind of drift away from God. 
So the believer who is devoted to prayer here is going to have the the strength to persevere in trials, afflictions, sufferings, adversity, misfortunes. And notice it says, be constant. Be constant. The idea here is you're, you're, uh, you're going to be steadfast. You're not going to waver through tribulations and trials. Steadfast and unwavering prayer should be a continual part of a Christian's life. should be the just a normal part of our lives. We're constantly, at least in the attitude of prayer, we can recognize 24-7 we've got this fellowship with God. Well, that's a trait of a Christian. And number nine, we, we need to contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Contri- our English word contribute there comes from the Greek word, hopefully you're familiar with, koinonia. Koinonia has the idea of you're sharing in or sharing with. Uh, the noun form of that Greek word often gets translated as fellowship or communion. The basic meaning is that it's, it's a commonality. There's this partnership going on. It involves a mutual sharing. So you're, you're mutually sharing to the needs of other Christians. That's, by the way, that's all saints means. Saints has nothing to do with fat little babies with wings sitting on a cloud playing a harp or whatever idea that people have. No, that's, that's, not, that's not what a saint is. A saint is a Christian. So you're then, you have this commonality. You're all in the same family, and so you're partnershiping with others' needs. The spirit of sharing was something that was evident in the early church, and you can see the word koinonia here in Acts 2.42. Look at this. It says, uh, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and koinonia, translated as fellowship, and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, look look how this commonality and the sharing or the partnership is lived out here in the first century church. Because it says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So in the eyes of society, we rightfully own certain things, don't we? But before God, do we really own anything? Not according to Psalm 24, verse 1, right? The earth is the Lord's and and the fullness thereof. In other words, everything belongs to God. So what are we then? We're just stewards. We are stewards of what he's blessed us with. And by the way, one of our most important responsibilities as his stewards is using our personal resources to contribute to the needs of other Christians. Uh, You you can see Jesus teaching on this matter. For example, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus made it very clear that we have a responsibility to other people. We're to love our neighbors, the other people whom we come in contact with, and we're to do that to the best of our ability, helping anybody in need whom we encounter. But did you know the Bible says you have a greater responsibility to the Christian? Yes, you have a responsibility to unbelievers, but your responsibility to the Christians is even greater. You say, well, how do I know that? Look at Galatians 6, verse 10 here. It says, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, including the unbeliever, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
In other words, your greatest responsibility is to the believer, to the Christian. Trait number 10 is this, show hospitality. Show hospitality. Literal meaning of that phrase is you're pursuing the love of strangers. Really? I'm supposed to pursue the love of strangers? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The idea is we're looking for opportunities to help people. In fact, look what Hebrews 13, verse 2 says here. Hebrews 13, 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. It's a love of strangers. Now, you need to understand what times used to be like a long time ago. In Bible times, uh, inns were often unfriendly, unhelpful, and possibly dangerous places. Inns were few and far between, or motels, whatever you want to call them. And so in New Testament times, uh, there, there weren't many of them, and they were expensive and could be dangerous. And so what would often happen is the Christians would show hospitality to one another and help each other out. For example, if somebody wanted to travel from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, um, there might be a place, although those places weren't that far. They might want to find another Christian home to stay in. Christian families commonly open their homes to other believers who might be passing through their town. In fact, the Bible talks about most itinerant teachers relied entirely on the support of other fellow Christians. They relied upon the hospitality of Christians. And in 3 John, the Apostle John actually commended someone by the name of Gaius or Gaius for his generosity in showing hospitality. Look at this. Look what he says in 3 John verse 5. He says, Beloved, talking to the Christians, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they're strangers, and they bear witness to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Now, there's a lot of implications you, you could get from those verses, but at least notice the, this point here, my friends. Just as they did, we too ought to be having that love for strangers, particularly Christian strangers in particular, showing love to them. Uh, this is not entertainment. It's not about you. It's not about, you know, how, how, how nice can I set my table or what kind of entertainment can I, can I show to, to people who come to my home. That's not what it's about. Right? You're, you're not trying to get a good name for yourself. It's all about you're doing this showing something that's worthy of God. You're glorifying God as you do this. And so, my friends... What's the point of this text here? Remember, what does God want us to do? We're to serve others. And so God wants us exercising His grace. As we're filled by the Spirit, He's working in and through us, serving other people. So as you do that, let me ask you, are you doing that, first of all? 
If you are, how are you doing? <laughs> how are you doing at that? Th- this is your blueprint. These are, it's not an exhaustive list, but if you want to know what the spirit-filled life looks like in action, in your attitudes, this is it. This is it. What are you going to do about it, though? I exhort you to put it into practice. Be a doer, not just a hearer only. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful blueprint of what the spirit-filled life looks like. We ask you would cause us to to exercise your grace to other people, even unlovely people at times. Uh, May we recognize we are forgiven people. We are in need of your grace. So may that perspective help us to show grace, your grace, to others who also need your forgiveness. So may we be a beggar just sharing bread with other beggars, if you will. May we have the right perspective so we would live this out. May we do this with zeal, passion, the right motives. May we love you and love people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.